Hi, this is Skip Stewart, Vice President, Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare, and this is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer of the Baptist system. And hey, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today I'm so excited. We have Ron Carucci. Uh, Many of you will know his name. He's written many books, been on uh, several TED Talks, uh, really uh, a leader uh, when it comes to the space of leadership and culture. And so we are so excited. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. And tell those that may not be familiar with your work and all your books uh, a little bit about yourself. I know we're going to talk specifically about your newest book, To Be Honest, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Skip, so much for having me. And doctors, great to be with you as well. Pleasure uh, to be in the presence of people who um, give so much that you give and save lives the way you do. So thank you. Um, I spend my days traipsing. So, uh, you know, I'm sort of like an organizational position. I roam the hallways and uh, alongside leaders who have got themselves into ditches or they need surgery on some part of their organization or they need it diagnosed. They need, they, they need an MRI of their strategy or of their culture. And so we have pretty forensic ways of going in and assessing where it is a leader and their and their enterprise are at and and helping them figure out how to get out of the ditch or avoid the ditch uh, and, you know, traipse through the messy process of transformation. Uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm Sometimes I'm just, you know, writing stuff down because I'm mostly because I'm confused about something. And so it's my way of sort of trying to get a coherent answer to a question I'm afraid I'm going to be asked. Um, and so, you know, I write for HBR frequently and uh, for Forbes. And um, sometimes I get hi- hyper neurotic and have to write a whole book. Mm. Ron, once again, thank you for being here. And I really like that term uh, enterprise physician. That That's that's pretty cool that you, you need to. Uh, you need to uh, patent that. But uh, anyway, like I said, thank you for being here. And the name of the podcast is called Connecting the Dots. And it, it's really a podcast about continuous improvement. But uh, in our in, in Jake and, and my journey through uh, continuous improvement, we've learned how important culture is in, in continuous improvement. And, and we've actually been able to connect those dots. And, and I, I guess throughout these all our, all the episodes we've done we've had probably just as many guests on talking about leadership and culture as we have talking about the nuts and bolts of improvement and we wanted to talk a little bit about your your latest book uh, called to be honest uh, lead with the power of truth justice and purpose and uh, in your book you talk about um, how important honesty is in uh, in an organization to to get the results you need but but tell us it 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 seems like that leadership style the leadership style that you promote hasn't always been around and and tell us describe how it used to be and and what were some of the uh, drivers that have have caused uh, the change in, in leadership styles well we can we can and we can even narrow closely into your industry where i've spent a g- good chunk of my time um you know so i think we leaders were raised in the 50s 60s and 70s to think that your job was to have to be the answer atm to have the answers to be in charge to you know give give direction and people would follow it 
um, I think in your world, you know, error, I mean, I mean it's, it's fine to say learn from your mistakes. You know, in your field, that's a different thing. And so, you know, mistakes have catastrophic um, consequences. And so, and yet they're made, right? Um, but but in, let's start with the training, right? The training in your field starts with seeing yourselves as small deities. Um, you're trained to think that, and, and when you are someone who actually does control life and death to some degree, it's not hard to believe that you're a deity. Um, administrators are trained uh, in way in, in a very volatile industry to look buttoned up for donors, to look buttoned up for investors, to look buttoned up for communities. And so the that whole paint a positive picture for the world of things, everything's just fine, largely gave way to uh, several generations of, of younger people realizing I don't buy it. Well, and if and if you if you were struggling to buy it before the pandemic, you really don't buy it now. Because sure. the pandemic pandemic didn't cause the world not to be okay. It just revealed that the world wasn't okay. And and in your in your space particularly, people are not okay. Um, you know, burnout is a real thing. Um, moral injury, I mean, a legitimate trauma response that most people associate with veterans. You know, now is playing squarely out in your world where people are finding that they are carrying trauma responses, no different than PTSD, when they are, are experienced having to not be able to care for patients the way they want to care for patients, which was so true painfully throughout COVID. So your, your world has been upended. And 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 the the playing God has collided squarely into being human. Uh, and I think there's still a lot of folks in your world that don't know quite how to deal with that. I spend I spend I spend time with um if you know the Schwartz Center at Harvard. Uh, I'm working with them now on an initiative called Healing Healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, on on how to bring healing to the healthcare industry. Um, and it's a beautiful initiative working with hospital systems to think about how do we think differently about the environments we create where doctors and nurses and administrators can coexist peacefully, can thrive together, cannot see each other as the enemy, uh, you know, to, to your world as, you know, um, you know, as technology infiltrates everything we do, as AI becomes real, uh, and how do we keep humanity not sidelined in the face of good technology? Um, you're being asked questions that you've never had to contend with before. And so uh, for which I'm grateful, because I think that will bring a fresh humanity to healthcare. But the transition in the middle for those of you in the system will can be a little bit bumpy. I definitely want to talk more about that initiative you're, you're working with and, and just burnout in healthcare and the, some of the specific issues we've had and how leadership and culture can hopefully address some. But I want to go back to the question of honesty. Um, you know, we're you, like you said, we're trying to be, you know, trained to be the people that have the answers to all the questions, never wrong, almost infallible. Um, and so whenever we do make mistakes, it's very hard for us to admit we've made a mistake, even though, you know, every everything as far as like a, a legal malpractice uh, point makes out that if you do make a mistake, it's better to admit it to the patient, you're less likely to be sued, et cetera. And mm-hmm. same as if you don't know the answer, it's better to say you don't know than to try to come up with something. Can you just uh, kind of expand a little bit more on, on those topics? Well, so here's, uh, I, and I'm glad you went squarely at the issue of 
honesty actually reduces risk for legal action rather than raises it because that's so counterintuitive, but so true. But at the moment where you're having to get those out of your lips, I'm sure it's not an easy piece of data to believe. But but we're, if you don't have to look around very far in our world to see that we're in a trust recession, yeah. right? We, we people are withdrawing trust from institutions of all kinds, education, non nonprofits, um, private sector, and healthcare. Um, you know, we we've raised up an unfortunately a very litigious society who thinks uh, has created entitlement. The other thing that's really painful about your world is that there's so much inequity in it when it comes to to who has access to the good stuff and who doesn't. And so there's a there's a level of entitlement and a level of displacement that you're all having to face every day. Um, and you don't get to make you, you don't get to choose. Uh, you get to walk into an ER and says, OK, who, who can pay for this? I'll take you first. Right. And, and, and yet the payers would have you do that. So your own sense of morality, your own sense of conscience is constantly being assaulted with trade offs that no one should have to make. So, so when you when you overlay that with conscience to say, how will I speak my truth? It starts with knowing, do you know what your truth is? Because today we've confused speaking your truth with speaking the truth. And how do we help people in leadership roles in your in your industry secure a set of values, secure a set of you know moral compasses by which they can navigate those hard trade-offs? So that honesty isn't discretionary. It's also not you know fluid. It's, you know, it's not it's not situation dependent. Um, I, I think in your world, it's it's it, the the question is now coming into light of what is integrity, you know, what does justice look like in a world where there's so much inequity? What does truth look like in a place where there's so much risk? And what does purpose look like in a world where you are changing the world every day? Uh, and how and how and yet we're burning out, right? How does how do you help people live a purpose for a career they chose? And gave themselves to, and gave, are probably still paying for the education from, um, that has now eating them from the inside out. Yeah, you you hit the hammer on the head when you when you said we have a trust issue because, you know, as, as leaders or even as physicians or, or anything, when we don't have the answers, it's we don't trust that people aren't going to think that we're weak or that that's a chink, a chink in our armor and that they're going to think less of us. And, and we equate strength with having all the answers. And, you know, I think sometimes, as you said, it's better to tell the truth. It's better to be a little too. Now, you have to be willing to expose your underbelly a little bit and, and be a little vulnerable. But uh, I think um, at the end of the day, you know, just like your mom says, you know, one 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 lie is going to lead to another is going to lead to another going to lead to another and if you if you're just honest and upfront right from the get-go uh things to be a lot better you know i think uh, the university of massachusetts research says that we all lie on average about twice a day is that all uh, i don't know who i don't know who counted uh, could be a lot what, what's interesting <laughs> what's interesting is when I ask leaders to to do their own self scrutiny, right? To say, let's go back over the last 10 days of your life, pull out your calendar, and I want you to pick out. Now, now in our book, remember that the definition of honesty isn't just truth telling. The definition of honesty, of honesty in neuroscience, in our brains, literally is defined as truth, justice, and purpose, right? To be honest, you have to say the right thing, do the right thing, 
and say and do the right thing for the right reason. So it's a it's a much higher bar. So I ask people to go over the last 10 days of your life and tell them and pick out 10 moments. You know, in fact, the one's going to see this where you weren't at your best, where you behaved beneath your own values, where you were curt with the barista, where you blew off your spouse or your kids, where you embellished information to your boss, where you withheld hard feedback from a patient because you didn't want to scare them or you saw peddled the diagnosis because you didn't want to deal with the, the, the blowback. And what's really interesting is if you look over those 10 moments, um, they're not random. You will see a pattern because we all we all choose these behaviors. We choose the moments of dishonesty for to serve a purpose. Right. We think we're going to engineer a certain response. We think we're going to feel safer. But we think we're going to f- avoid pain of some kind. We think that somebody will see us in a different light. Um, none of that's really true. But we've convinced ourselves of it. And so these behaviors, the behaviors that bring us to our dishonesty are reflexive. And until we get more honest about our dishonesty, it's going to be hard to grow our honesty muscle. One of the most surprising but confirming findings in the research was that honesty is not a character trait. This is not some moral imperative or some attitudinal disposition. It's a muscle. It is a capability, no different than surgery, no different than Anything you do with that requires skill. And if you want to be good at it, you actually have to practice it. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the importance of honesty from the position to the, the patient. Uh, what, what about from at the organizational level, from the leadership to the employees about the direction the organization is going? How important is honesty there? You know, I, I would imagine that a lot of organizations want to hide if they're doing poorly financially or if their quality of their hospital is underperforming. You mean like say, for example, from the chief revenue officer to the chief medical officer about the budget? Like that's an example, huh? Absolutely. (laughs) I've been in that meeting before. (laughs) Um, You know, the thing that has always troubled me about your industry is the border wars, is how intractably in conflict administration, nurses and doctors stay with each other. Um, I actually wrote a, a white paper on this years ago on integrated networking and, and, and how we need to just reinvent, reinvent the notion of who's the enemy here. Yeah. It's the disease. <laughs> it's not any, it's not her. Um, and I wish you guys could start seeing each other as allies and not nemeses. Um, I think in some places that's changed, but I think in some places it's still, you know, a, there's a pecking order. There's, you know. Crap trickles down from administration to doctors, doctors to nurses, nurses to orderlies. And it's unfortunate because, you know, you can't do what you do without all of you. Um, but I do think it's so to, to your point, I think it begins. Honesty begins at that fracturing. Uh, you, know, you look at all of Amy Edmondson studies in hospitals about, you know, who was who was offering truth answers. Why were there certain hospitals where more more adverse events were reported than others? It wasn't because they were having more of them. It's because they were being more honest about them. Um, so it's not hard to see that. And if you have a culture where it's not safe to be who you are, where um, it's not telling the truth, could have retribution. People aren't going to tell it. Everybody in your healthcare system shows up at work every day looking to answer two questions. Do I matter and do I belong? Mm. And your job is very simply and very difficultly to make sure they never wonder whether or not the answer to those questions is yes. Because the minute they wonder if they matter, they start defaulting to the the, the horrible counterfeit of looking like they matter. Uh, and gotcha. you've seen that movie before. 
Sure. When they don't know that they belong, then they have to hide parts of themselves, which means that, that all the capacity that they can be putting into the patients, into the quality, into the improvements, they're putting into mattering and belonging. When they know the answer is yes to both those questions, they are now freed up to use all their capacity to perform. Mm. Ron, you, you, in your book, you, you talk about four, four traits that uh, organizations need to have and that if they have these, that uh, the people in the organizations are 16 times more likely to be honest and to tell the truth. C could you uh, elaborate on, on those sure. traits? Sure, I'm sure some of them will sound familiar. Uh, so the first one is a clear and consistent identity. Be who you say you are. So I'm sure if I walked the halls of your hospitals, I would see a mission statement. I would see values. I would see purpose statements. Turns out that if those are lived experiences, if those words match the actions of the organization and of leaders in them, you're three times more likely to have people be honest. But if my lived experience contradicts what those words say, You've now institutionalized duplicity. You've now told people, hey, just so you know, around here, it's okay to say one thing and do another, which they will then do. Now you're three times more likely to have them be dishonest because you've told them it's okay to be dishonest. Second is accountability. How do I talk about contribution? If my work is talked about with dignity and fairness, meaning you treat the contribution as a reflection of the contributor, and the playing field is level around here, meaning I have as much of a chance of being successful here as anybody else. If that's the case, you're four times more likely to have people be honest. But if I think the system is rigged, if I feel like I have to hide my mistakes from you, if I feel like there are the surgeons are more privileged than the orderlies, uh, if there are certain roles more privileged than others, and those privileged disadvantage me, I now have to embellish my accomplishment to succeed, to succeed here. Now you're four times more likely to have me be dishonest. Mm. Transparent, transparency and decision-making is the third one. If I walk into a room of people, often referred to as a meeting, and I think what's happening in that room is an honest exchange of ideas. The person presenting whatever data they're presenting doesn't have an agenda that I, they're trying to get me to ascribe to. It's a fair assessment of two sides of a story. And I'm confident that if I were to offer a different point of view than the prevailing one in the room, that'd be okay. That's transparent governance. That's decision-making that's tr truly safe. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have me be dishonest because I don't have to worry what's going to happen. But if I walk into that room and I think it's orchestrated theater where what's being presented is uh, an agenda and a spin, and it's clearly expected that I conform with it. And the last thing I think you want to hear from me is a point of view different than the one that's prevailing in the room. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have me be dishonest because I have to go find the truth on the ground because it's not in the room. Mm -hmm. And lastly, we just what we just talked about before is border wars. If at the seams of your organization, surgical scheduling and specialty medicine, uh, uh, nurses and doctors, administration and everybody, uh, if at those seams there are unresolved conflicts, unhealthy tensions, um, intractable we's and they's, and now we have dueling truths. So my goal is no longer a single source of truth. I have one simple goal, to make sure you understand that you are wrong and I am right. Mm -hmm. But if those seams are stitched well, if there's a, a healthy container for the natural tensions 
that exist at those seams and we can resolve them in a human way. Now you're six times multiplied to have people be honest because now I understand we're all part of the same truth. We're all part of the same story. And uh, to your point before, doctor, those are cumulative stats. The models tell us that if you're good at all four of those things, you are 16 times more likely to be, be, be have people be honest in your system. But if you suck at all four of them, now you're 16 times more likely to put yourself in the headline of a story you never wanted to be in. Mm. So let's shift gears a little bit. I want to. I was very intrigued when you were talking about the Healing Healthcare Initiative. Mm. Uh, we've talked a lot about burnout on this podcast. It, it comes up regularly. You know, turnover's been a huge issue for us. Just a lot of people not wanting to work in healthcare anymore right now. Um, tell us, you know, what you have diagnosed as your inter-system physician role uh, is is our issues, and uh, how do we get through it? Well, I would start with. Um, your CEO and his table or her table um, and what happens in the room when those when that team meets because it's that, that is almost always the mo most and, and because you, you have to think about the complexities of your system it's painfully distributed usually across multiple systems right um, I mean I mean the one of the most mind-boggling ones is HCA I, I just don't understand how that's even how is that even possible um, but 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 you know multiple multiple facility multiple specialty practices multiple hospital systems distributed. Um, how do you even begin to think about coherence uh, in that system, uh, from patient outcomes to financial outcomes to uh, to uh, clinical outcomes? So around that CEO's table are all the leaders that make those things happen. And the first thing I want to see is, am I seeing uh, the UN or am I seeing a team? If I'm the ambassador from clinical, I'm the ambassador from oncology, I'm the ambassador from nursing, I'm the ambassador from IT, and that's all I'm here to do is represent my, my team's cause, and the CEO is meant to be the referee, quality outcomes. But if I have a team around that table, that has each other's backs, that sees each other as an ally, as a, as a critical interdependent part of a contribution. If I, I walk in that room inherently understanding I cannot be successful without them versus they're so lucky to have me, um, I, I will show you a very different set of outcomes. So I'm going to start with how that team understands its role as a leadership team in governance of the system. Because if that team doesn't understand themselves as one thing, um, but as a UN where that shows up and re reports out and does show and tell status updates and goes around the table and says what they're doing and reports out and then leaves and never thinks of them, thinks of each other again. That's the first place I start, because that to me, uh, if I can get that device, the leadership team, if I can get that device to be integral, to be cohesive, to be honest and transparent and to establish a level of trust and care among itself, now I have a foundation on which I can build. It doesn't mean all the other toxins in the system don't need antibiotics, but I have a start because that's often the source of the infection. And I would imagine that that you know, non-cohesive leadership structure has been around for a while. It's not something that has just come up over the last couple of years, but we seem to see more moral injury now since post-pandemic, or not post-pandemic, but during the pandemic that we've had over the last two and a half years, 
why is it more apparent now than it was several years ago? You know, I, so interestingly, I don't know that I would say the pandemic caused that. I would say the pandemic revealed it. I, I think it, I don't think it's not been here. I just think now we've decided we, we're not going to, I mean, if the pandemic showed us nothing else of the many things it did reveal, life's too short. And my, I, it's not worth it. And I'm not going to risk my life and my own health to save other lives at the expense of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tragic. It's, tra- I mean, nurses should not have to go home thinking and feeling the way they do. Um, you know, you guys, you know, on the front lines, healing, healing, healing bodies shouldn't have to feel like you, you know, that the, the, the financial payer system has decided you're no longer valuable. Um, and so there's a, there's tremendously painful complexities, you know, already assaulting your industry. Um, I think those could be more tolerable if you weren't also assaulting each other. Mm. So suppose uh, an organization has that leadership structure with the UN as opposed to a team. How do they change that? How do they get to where they need to be? Work on it. And I don't I mean that I don't mean that tongue in cheek. Get 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 outside help. There are it's this is not like rocket, we're not, you know, we're not reinventing wheels here. There are ways to create cohesive, integral, um, trust-based executive teams to run an enterprise. Um, and a lot of it's a lot, that those those leaders don't understand their role. They don't understand when they walk into that room, it's a different hat than the hat they wear down the hallway. They don't understand how to make decisions together. They don't know how to resolve their conflicts. They don't know how to have healthy dissent with each other. They don't know how to give each other hard feedback. They don't know how to make it. The CEO has not made it safe to tell him or her the truth. Uh, they, they, they expect that the rivalries among them will get resolved somewhere else. And they don't have an appreciation for how the rivalries between them trickle down. Which you've seen you know, far more than any of us, how painful that is. Um, and of course, that trickles right into the patient's bed. Patient's bed. I mean, I'm curious, what have, I mean, maybe you, maybe not at your system, but in other systems, what, what have you seen in terms, I'm curious what you've seen when you've seen leadership teams not be coherent? What, what have you seen the effects to be? Again, another hospital, not yours, of course. Sure. I mean, sure. We would never. (laughs) I think everybody's had the experience of, of hearing one piece of their organization blame another side for something that they can't accomplish a project they can't get to move forward. Um, you know, some of it is it seems that breakdowns in communication, despite, I think, having this new medium of communication that we're using right now um, to record the podcast. I, I feel like communication is somehow worse over the last couple of years um, because we're not in the same room as often. We're not out roaming the halls and seeing each other eating lunch together quite as much. Um, and so I feel like that breakdown and just, you know, seeing each other as as uh, human beings and people is lacking a little bit more than it was pre-pandemic. And and now we do see each other maybe as a little bit more of a a means to an end to advance your own agenda. What's really powerful about what you said, doctor, is that Microsoft research proved it. They proved that collaboration among cross-functional units 
decreased by 30 to 40 percent during the pandemic and uh, uh, collaboration among your own tribe, your own little team increased because that's who you saw most often. So the the, the weak, the already weak ties across the enterprise just got weaker. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we, we've mentioned this before. A healthcare system is the, one of the most complex. Oh. Skip likes to say associate was well, a socio-technical system around and you know, a lot of times we, we, we get we, we're too siloed and we don't we don't recognize the interdependency among the different departments. Yep. And we, we do tend to say, OK, well, that's that's EVS that that's, you know, they own that or transportation owns that or nursing owns that or case management or. You forgot IT. I mean, we get IT. IT owns that. You know, every problem with any problem with the EMR is IT's problem. And, 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 so EM, and EMR is already evil. So yeah, yeah. And, and and so we get siloed, and and we don't, like I said, we don't have each other's back. We don't we don't come together and say, hey, you know, we have to fix this together. You know, you don't. How, how can I? How you can you I may help? own most of it, but you don't own all of it, and and we're here to support you and and help you get better. But just so I want to think that there's a beautiful, simple example. What would happen if everybody shifted to the attitude you just described just once a day? Just saw a problem in a different lens. What would happen in your system if people could just do what you just simply described? And I'm not saying it's easy, but just stopped and paused that 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 template in their brain that looks for blame and just flipped the script and said, how can I help? What What, what would happen? Hmm. Well, Ron, Ron, this is amazing. Uh, Really, really good. I have one question. I know we have to kind of come to a close here, but I have a question because you caught my attention when you talked about honesty as a skill. And by definition, skills have to be practiced. You know, I always use the example of teaching my daughter how to drive a car. You know, she read a book and she had knowledge, (laughs) but she had no skill, right? So one of the things that a group of us have learned, uh, and I know I've learned a lot over the last couple of years from Dr. Edgar Schein, is around this humble inquiry and how do we practice it? And how do we go from what he calls a transactional relationship to a relationship of openness and trust? What are some of the, the things that you've worked with other clients on? You know, someone that says, okay, Ron, I'm bought in. I want to start practicing the skill of honesty. What what's maybe the first step? You know, with my daughter driving a car, the first step was to put her behind the wheel in a really big parking lot and to show her the differences between the gas and the brake. What's the first step that I could do if I want to start practicing honesty, maybe at a more intentional and deeper level? Well, the first thing I would have you do is the exercise I described earlier, which is get honest about your dishonesty. Right. Let's 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 get real about the places where you're not, you know, being your best self or being true to your values. But then I would tell you as a leader, um, if I asked you, do, do the people that work with you trust you? you? You know, the most common answer I get is, well, of course, why wouldn't they? And the question you need to ask is, why should they? And if you're not sure, um, go find out on what basis people are giving you or withholding trust from you. Um, if you're if you if you have a team of people, go get the mission statement or the purpose statement or the values of your company. Go get them off the wall and put them on the table and say, hey, how are we doing with this? How well are we living up to these 
promises. If somebody followed us around with a video camera all day long, could that video be used as a training program to train people on these values? Or would it be used as a training program on how not to live these values? Ask people how, how they experience your leadership. If, if, if you have no calibration, if you have no regular routine process of getting feedback on how people, how your colleagues experience you, how the nurses experience you in the OR, um, you should be worried because you shouldn't assume it's all fine. I think if you one of the, I think if you one don't of have the somebody, ways, go ahead, I'm sorry. If you, if you haven't, if somebody on your team and your organization isn't coming to you at least once or twice a week, telling you something that makes you uncomfortable, be very confident your leadership sucks. Because they're telling, that, some, they're telling somebody. That's well said, you, really well said. I, I think point. To, to add to that, I remember I asked um, uh, Dr. Shine once, I said, uh, you know, in my 30 years, I've seen leaders ask their people for ideas, suggestions, concerns, problems, obstacles, and rarely do you see people respond, you know. And I thought his answer was interesting. He said, well, he said, that makes sense, Skip. He said, if the relationship is only transactional, those people have more to lose than they have to gain. And I think that's still true with honesty, right? If if I'm wanting people to give me ideas and I'm wanting them to be honest with me and and I don't hear anything, it's not because they don't have ideas, that they don't have opinions, but somehow that relationship is not where yeah. it needs to be. You have not made it safe for them to tell you. And that means you haven't earned means you haven't earned their trust. That's right. Um, and you may have concluded, most of us think that our, we earn trust on our good intentions. I mean to be trustworthy, so I've earned your trust, which of course is foolish when you say it out loud, but that's what we all think. Trust is a currency, and we all trade in different currencies. I may choose to trust you because I think your character is worthy of it. You may choose to trust me because you think I'm competent. You may think you may choose to trust each other because your personalities are similar. And so we often want to presume that I earn trust the same way I extend it. That's not mm. true. And if you don't own the, if you don't learn the currency of trust others are trading in, you're going to miss the chance to earn it. You've got to be a student of your of your folks and find out what it takes to earn and more importantly keep their trust. And that's and you have to do it every. You have to earn it every day. You don't earn it and then just. It's not like a bank account where that just earns interest. You have to earn it every day. So good, so good. Well, Ron, thank you so much. It felt like that the time has went really really fast. Thank you so much for the work that you do, for the books that you write, your newest book, To Be Honest. Everyone needs to go out and pick it up. But thank you so much for your time to spend with us today. And on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, I just want to say a big hearty thank you and, and thank you for your time today. Well, gentlemen, thank you much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a privilege um, to you guys on the front lines. Thank you so much for your service and what you do and the sacrifices you make. Um, we do see you and we do appreciate you. Thank you, Ron. Thank you so much.